So did you have a blankie when you were little? Come on, you know, that cute little blankie that, that you just had to have before you went to bed. You could not go to sleep until you had your blankie. Maybe you still have your blankie, you know? Last 47 years, you've been tucking it under your pillow, hoping nobody knows that you have it. You know, you, you may still have it. That's okay. I've got good news for you. You might not have to get rid of your blankie, but you might have to upgrade your blankie to a weighted blanket. What is a weighted blanket? Well, a weighted blanket is a blanket that has all these little kind of plastic pellet type things inside of it, and it makes the, the blanket weigh a little more, anywhere from about um, two pounds to like 25 pounds. And so this, this weighted blanket is, is something that is based on your weight. So you would go pick the weight of a blanket based on your actual weight. And depending upon the size and the weight and the heaviness of it, they could cost you, you know, $200 or more. So why would you spend all of this money on a weighted blanket? Well, there's some research out there that says that a weighted blanket might help you sleep a little better. Something that might just help you rest a little more. Well, in what way do these things work? How? Ben Feebleman is a veteran of the Marine Corps. He has been in over 50 countries. He has had to go to sleep in a lot of different and a lot of difficult situations. And I was reading an article this week where he talked about ways that they have learned in the military to go to sleep just about anywhere that you are. And this is what he said about his body armor. It would squeeze you nice and tight and you could sleep in just about any nook or cranny of space because you were swaddled in armor, ammo, and weapons. Nothing says sweet dreams like being swaddled in ammo, right? But the picture is, is clear, right? I mean, you, you have this, this weight, either from a weighted blanket or from body armor, and it's kind of gently pressing in on you, and it kind of presses in on you in such a way that the weight of it kind of helps you drift off to sleep and maybe even sleep a little more soundly. Ben had a, another sleep tip that I just thought was great that I'd toss out too. He said this, I found it's easier if I keep a notepad with me or on my nightstand. I write down what I can't stop thinking about as a kind of to-do list for the morning. That works as an unburdening the mind trick. That makes sense, you know, a little, little, little sleep tip for you, a little, little help for you. But what if you forget to write things down before you go to bed? And what if you don't have a nice weighted blanket? And what if you wake up in the middle of the night in a nightmare, in the panic, the anxiety, the stress of a nightmare? If you don't have the notes that you jotted down, if you don't have a weighted blanket, is there any help? Is there something that can kind of gently weigh on your heart and your mind in such a way that it would help your heart and your mind and your soul actually just calm down and rest again? Is there anything like that? Well, yes, there is. And what? Well, let's just say that it's pretty heavy. How heavy? Well, let's find out. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 18. The Apostle Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time. So what are the sufferings of this present time? Well, Paul is writing to people who were living in Rome around 60 AD. So he's writing about the things that those people were experiencing, the sufferings that they had back in that day. 
So what kind of things were they suffering from back in that day? Well, around 60 AD in Rome, they were suffering from things like government corruption. They were suffering from things like war and and crime. They were suffering from marriage conflicts and parenting conflicts. They were suffering from financial conflicts. They were suffering from health conflicts. They were suffering from growing old and dying. Man, good thing we didn't live back then, right? We never have to deal with any of those things. Yeah, the truth is we do, right? The wisest king of ancient Israel said this, there is nothing new under the sun. Yes, are things different than they were back then? Yes, they are. Corruption is different. War is different. Crime is different. Marriage and parenting problems, they're different. Financial and health problems, they're different, but they're still here. They're different, but they're still here. They've always been here for thousands of years. Natural disasters was something they had to deal with back in ancient times. And guess what? We still have natural disasters too. And the death statistics are still the same. Everyone still dies. So even though the technology may be different, even though the the nuances of these things might be different, the type of suffering that they experienced is still alive and well today. So that means that what Paul wrote down about 1950 years ago, this still has legs for us today. It still works for us today. So, what did Paul say? Well, he said that he had considered some things. Or another way is to say that he reckoned some things. Now, if you grew up in the South, you hear that word reckoned, and and you've heard it before, right? Harvey, you going to pick up your mama from the beauty parlor? I reckon. Charlene, you going to make your mama's blueberry crumble for our family reunion? I reckon. We know this, right? We, we've heard this, this phrase. But Paul is, is not reckoning like that. It's, it's a little different. It's been estimated that according to the educational system of the day and according to his own training in the law, that Paul probably had the equivalent of two PhDs by the time he was 21 years old. Paul is is brilliant. (laughs) So when he says that he's reckoning something, he's, he's not just standing around with a toothpick in his mouth thinking of another way to say yes. Now Paul is, is completely different in his mindset here. The word for consider or reckon here that Paul uses is a, a word that was used in business. In other words, what Paul was saying is I've, I've calculated all of the options. I've weighed all of the options. I've evaluated all the situations. I have deliberated through all of the arguments. Paul was brilliant. He was educated. He was passionate. He was rational. He was reasonable. He was logical. And so what Paul does is, is he deeply and carefully, and really with educational fervor and spiritual fervor, he begins to consider and reckon all of the general sufferings in life and even the specific sufferings that certain people will have to endure. And what he does is he considers all of those things and he comes to a conclusion. And what is his conclusion? Well, we're going to get to that in just a moment, but, but let's don't miss what he says here about suffering. When Paul writes these present sufferings, it's still a language and a message for us today. If you have not suffered, you will suffer. You will suffer. Wow, honey, so glad we came to Holland Avenue, man. 
They're just so positive and encouraging. It's like listening to Caleb. Can't wait to get back. Listen, I don't mean to be down or down, but, but there's no reason for us to talk foolish, right? I mean, we're, we're going to suffer. I mean, there's, there's absolutely no way for you to avoid suffering in this life. There is some measure of suffering that we will all face no matter how old we are. Look, that little redhead girl in class that you slip that little note to and you tell her to check yes or no, she might check no. The waitress might come over to you in the restaurant. She said, I'm sorry, sir, we only have tofu bacon today. Yeah, that could happen. Your favorite reality TV show about fashion design based on the migrating habits of honey badgers, that show might get canceled, you know. You may never be able to watch it again. You might lose the bidding war on the blueberry crumble at the dessert auction at church too. That happened to someone last week. You know, I mean, you're, you're going to suffer. You know, there's going to be suffering. But the reality is your suffering might be a lot more intense than that, right? Your suffering may be that you lose everything in a house fire. Your suffering might be that, that your job is eliminated or you're demoted. Your suffering may be that you have a, a wild child. Your suffering may be that you're not able to have children. Your suffering may be that you have to endure the death of a child. Your suffering may be a, a spouse that abandons you. Your suffering may be that you never find a spouse. Your suffering may be that the doctor says you have debilitating arthritis. Or your suffering may be the doctor says you have terminal cancer. See, suffering like that will show up in our nightmares sometimes. But we all know sometimes it shows up in real life. And so the question is not, will you suffer? The question for all of us is, what are we going to do when suffering comes? When these present sufferings come to our door, what will we do? How will we respond? Well, generally speaking, there's only a few categories of how we can respond. I just kind of picked three. We can live in denial when suffering comes. We can get angry when suffering comes. Or we can play the blame game when suffering comes. We can live in denial. We, we can act like and almost try to pretend that the cancer's not there. We can, we can be the tough guy or the, the control freak gal. And, and we just keep telling, oh, everything's fine. Oh, I'm good. Everything's good. Everything's going to work out. We, just, we live in denial of, of what's actually going on. And we can deny suffering, but it won't make the suffering to go away. Or we can get angry at suffering. We can get angry at God, and we can get angry at the doctors, and we get angry at the politicians, and we can get angry at the pastors. We can get angry at our family and our friends. We, we can get angry with these folks. But here's what happens when, when we get angry like that. Our anger actually creates more suffering on us. <laughs> our anger actually creates more suffering in our own lives. Why? Because none of those people care? No. It's because the doctor has 10 other cancer patients to see that day as well. It's because the politician, she has 100 other different people who are mad at her about 100 other different things. It's because when you were telling the pastor about how angry and frustrated you are with God, he got five text messages from other people who are facing death or divorce or depression or disease. 
And it's because your family, man, they, they've got your anger for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And so it's not just that your, your anger would create suffering. It's not just that your anger generally creates suffering. It's not just that your suffering is there, but your anger added to the suffering causes suffering among the relationships in your life. And that type of suffering only increases your suffering. It's bad math. It's hard math. If we're not angry, then we switch up and we just play the blame game, right? We blame the doctors for not using enough strong medicine. We blame the politicians for not funding our cause. We blame the the pastors for, for not being there whenever we need them. We blame our family and our friends for not being there whenever we want them there. And we, we blame and we blame and we blame and we may even blame God for being unloving and uncaring. And here's what happens. At best, if you play the blame game, you'll feel good for a few minutes. It'll feel okay for a few minutes because you'll get to push off on someone. Or you might feel good for a few months or, or even a few years. But ultimately, the blame game will not help your suffering. It won't do anything to help your heart and your mind and your soul. Now, let me say this. All of us will probably do all of those things. <laughs> all right? Just to cut yourself some slack, all right? When suffering comes our way, we will probably all have our moments of denial. We'll probably all have our moments of anger. We'll probably all have our moments of blame. And that, that might happen. That's okay to some degree. The question is, how long will it last? You see, a a little bit of initial denial, a little bit of initial anger, initial blame, or maybe some temporary denial or anger or blame, those things might be expected. But if the pattern of our life becomes that, that we are constantly denying, we are constantly angry, we are constantly blaming, then what happens is the more we shake our fist at God and the more we shake our fist at other people, the only person that gets hit with our fist is us. See, we're hitting ourselves with all of those things if we just keep them up over and over again. The fist does not hit others. It just ends up bruising us. Sometimes I think we forget that our minds and our hearts and our souls, they are so tender. They are so tender, and we have to look out for our hearts. We have to look out for our minds. We have to look out for our souls. If not, we will beat ourselves up and we will beat ourselves down. So there's three categories of suffering. We can deny it, we can be angry about it, or we can blame about it. Is there another way to deal with suffering? Yes, there is. That's what Paul's moving us toward. Listen to what he says next in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared So this is an interesting picture. Paul is kind of doing like an intensive PhD research project on suffering. And he's taking all the data that he can on suffering. He's looking at general suffering. He's looking at the suffering that he's seen in his family and his friends and and maybe in strangers. He's even taking his own suffering and he's putting his own suffering into this research, into this consideration, into this reckoning. Well, what kind of suffering did Paul have? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 and 25, he starts like this. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. 
Once I was stoned. All right, that's rocks, not medical marijuana, all right? Let's just be clear we understand the language there, okay? Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. You thought you had a rough weekend, right? Listen to what he says next, verse 26. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Bless your heart, Paul, just stay at home. You know, just don't go anywhere. And then he says this, verse 27. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Paul's not whining about stubbing his toe. He's not whining about having to wait on the, the TV and the phone and the internet guy from 9 to 12 on Fridays, right? See, our suffering that, that we hold up as our life is falling apart because I have to wait on this. We, we live in such a crazy, comfortable world that we don't always even understand what true suffering is. But Paul was someone who really had experience with suffering. And what he did was he took all of his suffering, everything that he knew personally about suffering, he took everything that he knew about suffering from other places and other people and he put all of that suffering on one side of a scale and he's going to reckon something. He's going to consider something. He's going to evaluate something. He's going to put something on the other side of the scale. And what he's doing is he's trying to determine value. He's trying to find out what is most important. He's trying to decide when I look at all of this suffering, is it worth my denial? Is it worth my anger? Is it worth my blame? Is it worth my time to do all of those things? Or is there something more valuable? Is there something more important that I should be putting my thoughts and my energy and my joy into? So what does Paul put on the other side of the scale? Listen to what he says in the next part of verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So on the other side of the scale, Paul puts the glory that will be revealed to us. All right, let's think through this. Who's us? Well, us would be anyone who has repented of their sin and their rebellion against God and his ways. Anyone who has truly surrendered and, and yielded their life up to Jesus. Anyone who, as we often say, is, is relying on and trusting in and, and clinging to Jesus as their only source of salvation and satisfaction and joy and hope today and tomorrow and next Friday and the moment after they die. That's who the us is. And so what kind of glory is going to be revealed to us? What kind of glory is going to be revealed to believers? What kind of glory is going to be revealed to Christians? Well, Paul says it's, it's a glory that is beyond our understanding just by using the word glory. The word glory here that he uses, it means heavy. It means weight. It means substantial. It means significant. It's something that is beyond our imagination. It's so amazing that we can't even comprehend it. So what is this glory that he speaks of? 
One of the simplest ways that we could say it, the glory that Paul speaks of that will be revealed to us is the glory of eternity with God. Eternity with the living God. Infinity with the living God. Now that may sound like like nice language, but it might be hard for you to make a connection with it. Maybe you're thinking, hey, I can't go Google that. Can't go Google eternity with God and see pictures of this. At least not real pictures. Somebody might have something out there. I don't know. But but I can't see it. And I I can't go buy a a plane ticket and go fly to eternity of God for summer vacation and and check it out and and feel a little better about it. And so sometimes because we can't see it, we we seem to think it's not real or, or we can't make a connection with it. And so let's, at least for a moment, try to help us at least think in that direction. Let's try to to think about the beauty of what it means to have the glory of God forever and ever and ever. Just eternity with God forever. And as we think, I'm going to ask C.S. Lewis to chime in with us here. C.S. Lewis said this once in a sermon. You can go and enjoy the gift of many a fine morning if you get up early enough. What more you may ask do we want? Ah, but we want so much more. We do not want merely to see beauty. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. To be united with the beauty, to pass into the beauty, to receive the beauty into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and the purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh And pure. And then he says this We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. That's good. We we shall get in. If you're a Christian, your soul longs for the beauty and the glory of God. If you're not a Christian, your soul longs for the beauty and the glory of God. It is what we were created to long for. Your soul longs to get in. It longs to get in because this glory is that heavy. It is that weighted and your soul knows it. But we are always grasping in so many directions and we we can't seem to find it. There is great beauty in this world. There's no doubt. But the beauty of this world is not ultimately fulfilling. It's not ultimately satisfying. It's not final beauty. And how do we know that? Well, we know that because for at least the last four to five to 6,000 years, the cutest babies in the world have grown up and grown old and died. So we can't find ultimate, final, satisfying beauty in people. They don't have that capability. And you know what? We can go to the Grand Canyon and, and we could be there at sunrise. It might be amazing. Or we could be on the South Carolina coast with the trickling waves at sunset and and we will feel and, and see the beauty and the power of nature. But here's the thing, the, the very next day a tornado can rip through the canyon and cause devastation and death. The very next night at sunset a, a hurricane can hit the coast 
and create destruction and fatalities. So we, we can't just find ultimate, final, satisfying beauty in nature. And you may be the chief executive officer of the, officer of the company today, and then by Christmas you could be the chief sanitation officer. Yeah. You could go from having a huge salary to, in just a few months, having not a huge salary. So even in our positions, in our possessions, we cannot find ultimate, satisfying, fulfilling glory. The beauty of the glory of God is, is only reserved for him. So where can we find it most clearly? How do we find this eternity with God? How do we find this glory with God? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Huge verse. Is there another way to deal with suffering? Yes, in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the other option. The other option beside denial and anger and blame is glory. The heaviness, the weight of the beauty and the majesty and the power and the authority and the love and the grace of God. And all of that is found in the face of Jesus Christ. What does that mean, though? Let me give this quote, and, and this will be one. By the way, if you don't know this, the notes every week are on the website. You can go and any of these quotes that you want to find, you can find them when you click on the, the More tab. You can find these quotes on there. But, but, but think on this this week. This will be one we have to kind of chew on for a little bit. John Piper says this, The ultimate reason that suffering exists in the universe is so that Christ might display the greatness of the glory of the grace of God by suffering in himself to overcome our suffering. It's a huge statement. I just, I just kind of want to focus on the last part, to overcome our suffering. Listen, there's nothing in this world that will prevent you or protect you ultimately from experiencing suffering in this life. Look, we're going to do our best to, to be wise about safety. I'm, I'm so excited and proud of three of our youth. Um, they, they fixed the door upstairs. <laughs> they were so excited. Like, yeah, that door wouldn't shut and lock, so we fixed it. I'm assuming it's fixed. I guess we'll find out later, but, but they fixed it somehow. You know, because they're like, hey, you know, Pastor Dad, we've got to be on safety. You know, we've got to be thinking about this. Look, we can do lots of things to think about safety, but ultimately... There's nothing in this world that can perfectly always keep you away from suffering. Suffering will find us. And there's nothing in this world that can protect you eternally from suffering. Whatever type of suffering we face, there's nothing in this world that can ultimately and always protect you from that suffering. But there is someone who has overcome your suffering. He's overcome your suffering. See, this story about Jesus is not just a fairy tale. Jesus, for real, he took your sin. He took the shame of your sin and the guilt of your sin. He took on the penalty of your sin. And he owned all of that. 
On a cross outside of Jerusalem, Jesus suffered and died, but he rose again to make sure that you would not have to die in your suffering, but that you might be able to overcome your suffering through him. This is who he is. Jesus ultimately overcame your suffering in the cross and in his resurrection. The kind of suffering that no tornado and no hurricane and no demotion at work and not even death can ever wipe away. This is who he is. And we may say, okay, that sounds good. Jesus has made a way for for me to overcome my suffering in life through him because he's rescued me. He's purchased my salvation. He's given me this eternity with God. All of that in the face of Jesus Christ. That, That sounds so good. But what does it really sound like in real life? Courtney Reisig is a wife and a mom from Little Rock, Arkansas. And Courtney says this. If we are suffering from cancer... We are limited by chemotherapy and radiation. If we are going through menopause, we are limited by our unpredictable hormones and changing body. If we are paralyzed or physically disabled, we are limited in even the simplest of activities like fixing our lunch. And then she says this, but we serve a God who has no limitations. When we need sleep because of another restless night, he does not. When we're exhausted after a long day with busy toddlers, he keeps working on our behalf. When we face another day hugging the toilet as chemotherapy runs its course, he is never weary or defeated. When we despair over our inability to move without artificial help, he is our rock and our sustainer. And she says this, If we were not given limitations, loss, or suffering, we might become comfortable with life on this earth. Only when confronted with difficulty do we begin looking forward and longing for a better life. See, we run the risk of looking at our suffering and go, get away, I don't want the suffering. But the gospel would tell us, oh, be careful because that suffering will help you love Jesus and love what he's overcome for you and love what's waiting for you after death. Why would you not want to love that? It doesn't mean we want to invite suffering foolishly. It's just that when suffering comes, we remember, oh, this is reminding me, don't be too comfortable here. And Courtney says this. As Christians, our limitations move us forward to that glorious day when our faith is made sight, every tear is wiped from our eyes, and we are with our Savior forever. This is what it means to be connected to Jesus. If your hope is in this world, you will have no hope because this world can only give you so much hope. But the promise that we have in the crucifixion and the resurrection, the ascension, and the return of Jesus is solid. It's just solid. It has way too much evidence behind it for 4,000 years. Really, it has all the evidence from before the foundations of the world. And so having your faith made sight, that's heavy. That's weighty. That is glory. That's glory. Let me bring another mom in, though, just to, I, I love keeping this practical. Don't want us to have these fantastic, 
you know, biblical truths and go, oh, it's nice. I remember that from the sanctuary, okay? So let's take this glory and let's put it in the chair at the dentist, okay? <laughs> Melissa Kruger, she's a wife and mom from Charlotte. This is what she wrote about having a root canal. As I sat in the chair with various instruments in my mouth and unappealing sounds ringing in my ears, I closed my eyes and pictured being at home. <laughs> That's good. I considered that soon this temporary discomfort would be over and I would be back at home going about my day. And then she said this. In a similar way, afflictions teach us to long for our heavenly home. The longer we live and the more trials we endure, the greater our hope for our eternal dwelling. Losing faith in this world propels us to hope in the world to come. Is there another way of looking at suffering? Yeah, I reckon. It's the glory of God. It's the glory that is to be revealed, the glory that was promised in the face of Jesus Christ, the glory that was carried out in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So is there another way of dealing with suffering besides denial, besides anger, besides blame? Yes, there is. Quite simply, it would be this, run to Jesus, come to Jesus. For Jesus by his glory and for your eventual glory with God. He's purchased freedom for you. A freedom that can weigh you down in just the right ways in the middle of the day and in the middle of the night because it is a freedom that reminds you that no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever do anything to you and can never take away this glory from you. That's heavy. That, that's heavy. So for the nightmares in the middle of the night, for the nightmares in the middle of the day, I would just graciously encourage us to remember Paul's words and that we would put on the blanket of glory and we would let it weigh us down and that we would see that every promise in Jesus is real. Every promise in Jesus is real. And we need to keep telling ourselves that because our hearts are tired and our hearts are weary and we need to help each other see beauty again because it is what our souls long for. So let us look not at our sufferings as anything other than what is right now, but let these light momentary afflictions and sufferings propel us to the beauty of our home with God in eternity and all of his glory upon us.